0: Been thinking about uh, just before we get to the sermon. You know, what we do is uh, very countercultural in gathering like this. Just the rest of the world, they don't do this, of course. We, we gather to bring praise to God, we, we gather to hear someone speak about this book, this Bible, and we believe that this is uh, transformative. And and I hope that uh, as we open our Bibles this morning, that that you have the expectation that you're going to hear from God. And I realize I'm just a man, but the word of God is to be preached. And uh, there's something supernatural that happens, and I think in part what's required of us is that we have the expectation, the expectation that God will speak. So, let's have that expectation this morning as we we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, as we continue in our journey through this uh, glorious and extraordinary book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 6 is the whole whole chapter. We'll read that together. So I invite you to turn there in your own Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can certainly use one of the, the church Bibles. You're welcome as well to take that home if you don't own one. So if you do not have a Bible... This is the honest truth. That can be yours. You can own it. You can just take it out. We won't stop you and say, hey, why are you taking the Bible? You can be your Bible today, okay? We want you to have the Word of God handy. All right, let's look at the Word and uh, read it together. Follow along, if you would, in your own Bible. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, come. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and of the great ones and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is the word of God, and we thank him for it. I invite you to pray with me, And we'll ask the Lord for help this time. Father, these are ancient words as we just sang. They're your words, breathed out by your Spirit. They're food for our souls. And Father, we ask that you would nourish us today on this word Cause us to understand. Cause us to be wise. And Lord, we know that this word is truth. So we ask that you would sanctify us by it. Make us the people you want us to be. Give us humble, expectant hearts, minds opened to your truth, and just a general readiness. May your will be done in this time. And through me, Father, I pray that you would grant me the grace needed to communicate this in a way that is undistracting, that is clear, and that what we hear ultimately transcends the words of a mere man. We need to hear from you, so cause it to be so. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. In any sort of organization or structure or or event, there's this reality that someone is in charge, right? A nation. Every four years, we elect someone to be in charge. We ask the question, "Who's in charge?" And and I suppose there are times, as citizens, you all might be saying, "Who's really in charge?" Or in the state, or or in the city, because things don't exactly seem to be going like we want them to go. We ask the question, who's in charge? And, and we see this from the perspective of our elected leaders. Oftentimes, they think, they really think they're in charge. And remember the beginning of the pandemic, don't you? It's like, well, we're going we're gonna to conquer this virus, taking upon themselves that mantle of leadership to say, we've got this. I just longed for at that time someone to say, we got to trust God, but not one of them ever said it. Who's in charge matters. And I suppose that there are times that we look around the world and we wonder, who's in charge? Now, we know as Christians that God is in charge, but but there are times maybe we wonder or might doubt exactly what he is accomplishing. Is it like we expect it to be? Do we wonder at times if God really is in control or if he's just sort of like hands off? Well, in the previous chapter, the Lamb, that's back in chapter 5, the Lamb, that is the risen Son of God. He has been found worthy to, to take the scroll. He's been, for, worth, he's been found worthy to open it and reveal its contents, to look into it. And I take it that what John is being shown in his vision is what, it, what to expect between the first and second advents of Jesus, between his birth, life, death, and resurrection, and then his ultimately, ultimate uh, return. He's revealing to John what's going to happen during that time. Now, last week I said that the seals, if you're with us, the seals represent both judgment and vindication. And that judgment is a consequence of human sin, Yet, I think what we're to understand is that God's own children are not spared from the temporal consequences of that sin. And I think we all agree, it's a very bitter pill, isn't it? But there is ultimate judgment that we are saved from And today, we're going to look at chapter 6, dealing with the first, sorry, dealing with six of the seven seals, just this chapter. And I take it that's really an overview of history. And these, these seals, they, they teach us three things, as we'll unpack them this morning. And, and these are really my headings for where we're going in this message. Here's what we learn as these seals are open. The first thing to understand is that we need to expect tribulation. We have to expect tribulation. Second, be patient. And third, there is no escape for the rebellious. Expect tribulation, be patient, but know there is no escape from God's wrath for the rebellious. First of all, expect tribulation. We are looking at verses 1 through 8 here. I, uh, I never put bumper stickers on my car, but sometimes I'm amused at what other people put on theirs. Uh, bumper stickers don't have a lot of room, so the things that they say really have to be pithy. They have to make you think, right? Or else they're not even interesting. And Some of the messages are almost philosophical, and there's one such message as it stuck with me, and, and maybe you've seen it before, but it's just simply, life is hard, then you die. That, that's, I saw that. Now, it doesn't sound very optimistic, I realize that, but when you think about it, it really has a ring of truth, doesn't it? Because in varying degrees, along with good things, people, and we know this, right, people experience challenges, grief, disappointment, and suffering in life. We can't escape those things. Life is indeed hard. And where do we end up? We're all can to die? No one escapes that certainty of our, that our, our mortal lives will end. Now looking at the opening of the first four seals, these four, the first four, they represent different kinds of tribulation. The fact that life is hard. We're to expect that. Now let's, let's look at them uh, seal by seal. The four living creatures, I just want to remind you where, where these are. So they're announcing these four, the op- at the opening of each of these four seals, they're the ones uh, saying, come. Each of these we find back in chapter 4, verse 8, and uh, each one, there's four of these creatures, one appearing with the face of a lion, one with the face of an ox, another with the face of a man. The other with the face of an eagle. So they, they resemble them, except that they have, they're full of eyes. They have six wings. Again, they're fantastic creatures. We don't exactly know what they are, but they're part of this vision to represent something. And these creatures, they call out uh, four different colored horses. And, and as I studied these, there's other places in scriptures where, the, where there's different colored horses. And I couldn't find a lot of agreement, so I'm not going to really deal with the, how they compare to the rest of scripture. But let's get to the seals. The first seal is opened. And what does that seal represent? Well, first, the living creature, in order of description, we'll, we'll, let's assume it's the lion, the one that looks like a lion, calls out, come, and this white horse shows up. And so what's significant about white? And I think it matters in this section of the scripture. What's significance about the white horse? Well, among Romans, among the Roman uh, Roman armies, the white horse symbolized victory in battle. So if you, were, if you were a conquering general and you rode in on a white horse, like, he's, he's, he, he won the battle. It's all good. And that rider on this white horse has a bow and a crown is given to him. The word crown is used in this, but I think it could be more like a garland. Now, some scholars say that this rider is... The same as Jesus, because in Revelation 19, 11, Jesus there riding a white horse is described as the faithful and true, who judges and makes war. But I don't know that that's necessarily true, and I don't think it's the case that this is Jesus. The, the idea that the white horse is ridden by one who is victorious, who, who conquers in battle. And this crown, like I said, is probably more like a, a garland that, that Roman... Uh, emperor's or generals war as a, as a reward for victory in battle, and that bow, of course, is a weapon of war. And then we're told here that he, this rider, came out conquering and to conquer. And I take it that this, this first seal shows the reality. What are we going to expect in the world? What do we expect to see? What should John? Understand is going to happen between when Jesus is born, lives, is crucified and raised and ascended to the Father and the promise of his return. What should John expect to see? What should we expect to see? And we're not surprised. War. Battles. And that brings suffering for God's people, doesn't it? Right now, there's a war in Ukraine. Now, we're not personally affected by that except maybe economically. But there are believers in both Ukraine and in Russia who are deeply distressed by this. They've lost everything. More so in Ukraine. But it's distressing for the pastors in Russia too and I've heard about them. They're they're just longing for them to be able to have that fellowship with their brothers in the Ukraine. They're completely distraught by this. And some of you I know have been involved in Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, being a military town, you've served there. Maybe some, maybe not anymore, but some I know among us have served in Vietnam. Before that, there was a Korean conflict and World War II and then one. And in other parts of the world, there's wars going on. There have been wars. This is a reality. John is told the White Horse conquering, expect war. The second seal is then opened. This is the living creature says come and it's probably the one with the face of an ox. And he calls out the, the bright red horse. That red I think symbolizes blood spilled. And we're told here that that rider is, is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people kill one another. And he's given a great sword representing the, the shedding of blood. And we can't escape this. We all know this past week, the, the horrific events in Nashville. The murder of three children and three school administrators, right? That Christian school, you probably heard about it. Taken out by this mentally unstable, hateful young woman. And, and I think it was targeted. One of the children murdered is the daughter of the pastor of the church. You know, this is the, already this year, it's the fifth mass killing And I'm not speaking about solutions for gun violence or any of that. Leave it to the politicians to talk about that. You may have one opinion or another, but it doesn't matter. But the reality is, violence is horrific. So in 2023, there was a Michigan State University, three killed. Half Moon Bay, seven killed. Monterey Park, 11 killed. Enoch, Utah, eight killed. That's just in 2023. 2022, Chesapeake, there was six killed. Colorado Springs, 26. And there's more to the list. I could go on to countless others, domestic violence, street violence leading to murder, murders and robbery, murders to cover up crimes. Think of that lawyer, right? He made the news, I think in South Carolina, recent conviction for killing his wife and son. Just murder, murder, murder. It's everywhere. And this seal reveals the fact that people will have murderous intentions and inclinations, and they'll carry those out. And of course, we're not resigning ourselves to it. We're not saying, well, whatever. But it's just a reality. It's a reality. That heart of Cain that killed Abel has gripped so many and continues to do so, and will continue to do so until Christ returns. Well, the third seal is opened, and that third living creature, probably one with a human face, says, "Come." This. This, this one comes out as a black horse. The rider is on a black horse. And the rider has a couple of scales. And again, the black, I think, might indicate just simply trouble. The scales, I take it, have to do with commerce. And so there's, he hears this voice, a quart of wheat, three quarts of barley, each of them costing a denarius. Yet do no harm to oil and wine. And I think that this, this seal has to do with economic hardship. The scales, they're, they're used to weigh out payment for grain. It's the, the, the means of commerce. And, and just so you understand it, a denarius for a quart of wheat is absolutely exorbitant. I, I read somewhere 1,200 times what it should cost. The same amount, a denarius for three quarts of barley, which is, which is not as uh, precious. Still exorbitant prices, ridiculous inflation. We see this, don't we? And we don't experience it like people in other parts of the world. We experience inflation right now. Those of you who remember the 70s, it was pretty tough then too. So we feel the cost of food and fuel rising dramatically. There's food scarcity and increased poverty, in particular in other places of the world. Again, far more significant there. And so I asked the question, is, is inflation a morally neutral economic phenomenon? I think it's not. I think it's the result of sin. I'm not getting into economic theory, but, but it's sinful activities of, of governments, I think, oftentimes lead to trouble. War brings inflation. War is a consequence of sin. But the reality is, what to expect between when Jesus has ascended to heaven and his second coming? Economic hardship. Well, then the fourth seal is opened. This fourth living creature, probably the face of an eagle, calls come. And this is a, a pale horse. That pale, uh, that when you, when you look at the, the, the original word, we're, we're in, it's intended to be this yellowish-green color. It's the color of death. And it follows, of course, that the rider's name is Death and this other personified Hades, the grave, follows him. And then he's given authority to kill over a fourth of the earth. A fourth. Think about that. That's devastating. And he does it with sword, famine, pestilence, Wild beasts. Now, I've said in weeks past that when we look at the language here in Revelation, we find it back in the prophets. It's very similar. Notice how, how Jesus, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Here's an example uh, taken from Ezekiel. Um, that God declares the judgment will even fall upon his own people. And I'll give you an example in Ezekiel 14, 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment. Same thing. Sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. A fourth of the earth through these four different ways. But just one example of pestilence, right? And we're not going to soon forget the COVID pandemic. There's that loss of life, the ongoing medical consequences, both the virus and perhaps maybe even the untested vaccine. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here, but you know, whenever we, we do something medically to intervene, to prevent something, there are other consequences that we find out later. Who knows what we'll find But you know before that pandemic there was a swine flu, AIDS, bird flu, other diseases, cancer, heart disease. You know it. Foodborne illnesses that kill. In other parts of the world there's profound poverty and starvation and disease. Now, there's likely a whole lot of overlap between these seals, the effects of them, right? War brings famine and economic hardship. Pandemics bring hardship and death. Violence displaces people and brings death. It's tribulation, it's hard. Life is hard. Expect it to be hard. In varying degrees, we're all experiencing a measure of suffering. So when you ask the question, well, wait, Jesus, you came. I thought you were going to make the world a better place. We're being reminded that God is in charge. These things had been ordained. The right hand of the one seated on the throne handed it the scroll to the Lamb, the one who appeared as though he had been slain, the risen Son of God. And he unfolded for John what to expect. Note as well, though, that these seals, they're not unlimited in their destructive effects. God is in charge. And it is clear, I think we're being told, it is clear that he restrains evil. Just an example in in the text that we saw together. In the third seal, this is verse 6. The oil and the wine are not to be harmed. You think, why? Why that? Now, of course, the oil and wine, they're not as essential to life as grain, but I think they're possibly symbolic. Oil is associated with, with joy from the Lord. Look at Psalm 45, 7, and uh, you see it in Hebrews 1, 9, Isaiah 61, 3, the oil of gladness. So I take it that suffering is not absolute. There are occasions of rest and, and gladness and joy interspersed with Suffering. But wine is also associated with abundance and and the free will offerings associated with that given to the Lord. You can look at Genesis twenty seven thirty seven as an example of that. Exodus twenty nine forty. Wine associated with abundance and, and that which we offer freely to the Lord. So I take it that we're to understand that, yes, there will be economic hardship, but the the Lord will not allow, he will restrain, he will not allow complete devastation. And so we're in a period, brothers and sisters, aren't we? Where we don't experience absolute devastation, we suffer, but there's good. And in seasons in in the world history since since Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there have been, in this period, Part of the world, this particular piece of geography where things were very difficult, think of the settlers who got here. In Europe, there were times of devastation. In the African continent, in South America, better and worse times. While there is evil in the world, we can be sure that God does restrain it. That's what we're being told. And if God did not restrain evil, if God did not hold back the, the the evil impulses of man, we would surely self-destruct in no time. God is in charge. Now, Jesus is opening these seals. He has received the scroll from the one who is seated on the throne, and we take it that that's the Father, the one who was and is and is to come. And so we have to conclude that God here is not a passive observer in all of this. He has, in fact, ordained these things to be. He has ordained these things to be even and including, hear this, the evil acts of men. Now, I use that word ordain. That's that's a theologically precise word. To say ordain doesn't mean that God is responsible. He is not the author of evil. We cannot allow that. It says in James 1.3, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts No one. God is not the author of evil. So we have to ask the question then, why do bad things happen in the world? Why is there tribulation? And the only conclusion we can have from Scripture is tribulation is ultimately our own fault. It is the result of sin. You know, all we have to do is go back to the garden, right? God forbade Adam, said, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat that one. Adam disobeyed and he brought toil. He brought suffering and death to himself and all of his progeny. That's what he did. And as a result of that, God cursed the ground. God cursed the land, the earth, because of Adam's rebellion. And God cursed it in order to drive Adam to trust the Lord and not to trust in himself. Now what Jesus here is revealing to John in in these four seals is no doubt similar to what John had heard Jesus teach. When Jesus walked with his disciples. John heard this very teaching and and his disciples one day asked about the timing of the kingdom. Jesus gave a near and long-term answer, but I'll I'll direct you to Matthew 24. Hear Hear these words that Jesus said. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be Famines and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains. So when you experience tribulation, birth pains, the end is not yet. What this is, is God's judgment on the world for sin in general. And so I want you to think with me about the very nature of God's judgment for a moment. I want you to think about that. God is absolutely sovereign. The scriptures teach us that. He has the, the absolute right to inflict a specific consequence upon anyone that opposes him in any way. God has that right. We're clay. He has the right to do with us what he wants. He has proven himself to be merciful, but God has the right to discipline, to inflict. But I wonder, so again, this is what I want you to think with me. I wonder if, if the very nature of God's judgment is not so much God saying, hmm, what should I inflict upon these people for this moment? But rather it's something that is built into the very design of something. When you go against his plan, natural consequences flow. I think of it this way once sin was introduced into the system, like like a virus into an organism, that sin, that virus, then corrupts everything that it touches as it seeks to replicate. And what Adam's sin did was upend the balance of creation. And so what happened was that the creation itself, if you could personify it, began to treat Adam, because he introduced the sin, like a virus fighting him at every turn. Remember, the Lord told him, cursed is the ground because of you. That's Genesis 3. It made him toil to produce crops, the sweat of his brow. And for women, the most glorious thing that that they would have the privilege of doing, bringing life, right, that that would become difficult. Pain in childbirth and conception and pregnancy, difficult. And Romans Romans 8, 19 tells us that that all of creation just, just waits for the revealing of the sons of God. It's just like, when the sons of God are revealed, their sin is taken away. It's like creation will breathe this massive sigh of relief, finally. (sighs) Further, just to my point about, about the way in which judgment happens, You know what Romans tells us? Romans 1 tells us that when people persist in sin, when they refuse to honor God or give thanks to him, it implies something that God has been restraining, restraining, well, I'm not going to let you go there. I'm not going to let you do that. But but when people persist and, and just rebel against him continually, continually, it tells us there, he takes off the restraints. He hands them over. He hands them over to a depraved mind, and they violate the most basic of creation ordinances, marriage between a man and a woman. So, my point here. God ordains that these things happen. But he's explaining, this is what you get when you rebel against me. And inasmuch as we are not absolutely and completely consumed, it is because God said, Nope, not going to allow it. And this is just a complete aside. I wonder, I just wonder if what hell is in an ultimate sense, God just saying, Have what you want. And we will self destruct, except we will go on for it, not we. The unredeemed will go on forever in a continual self-destruction because God says, you'll have it, fine. And it's the worst possible thing. That's just an aside. Reality here is that we all experience tribulation and suffering. It is God's judgment on creation and it's the natural consequence of introducing that virus in. All of us participate in it are responsible for propagating it. And God often intervenes to prevent sin's full destructive effect. But eventually, our mortal bodies give out and they will die. But here, I I don't want to leave it there, right? (laughs) See, for all of us who trust in the promises of God, all who have put their faith in Christ, God takes those consequences, those temporal consequences of sin in the world, and he turns them in a way to, to test us, to discipline us, to form us and build endurance in us and to, prepare, to be prepared for glory. So suffering is real. But when, brothers and sisters, you experience that diagnosis that you didn't want to get, don't look at it as like, well, God has just throwing some punishment at me. Look at what the, the Word so, tells you. God is going to use this to form me because there's a greater glory. A greater glory. And so Peter describing, in 1 Peter 4, describing what are difficulties for believers, and and I I take it in the context perhaps under persecution, but he says this, and I think it can be applied to everything that we might experience. It's hard. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And so something... Strange were happening to you. The seal was opened. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Jesus suffered. He suffered at the hands of humanity ordained by God in order that he might redeem us so that his suffering would be in our place. But, but when you suffer, You look to the suffering of Jesus and and in a sense, you're sharing in Christ's own suffering. That, like Him, you also may rejoice when His glory is revealed. Suffering now is to prepare us to see His glory when He is revealed in that day. See, for the believer, there's hope we have hope on the other side of this mortal life. That's, that's that glory, right? And Christ purchased that glory. And I'll say it again. He purchased that for you by taking upon himself the eternal consequence of your sin. And so when Jesus said this to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's the Reality. of The opened first four seals, right? You're gonna have tribulation. It's gonna be hard. But take heart. Be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Now, we live in a time where Jesus having overcome the world is not completely obvious to us, but it is certain because he has promised it. And so, what that means as we get to our next section here is that we must be patient. We've got to be patient. Uh, There's a well-known maxim, perhaps you're familiar with it, that justice delayed is justice denied. You probably have heard that before. Now I was looking at this up, that the typical time between a murder arrest and the trial is 30 to 45 days. That feels like a long time. But I know, and I've seen this as I've read about certain kinds of cases, there have been some cases that have taken months, even, even years, to come to trial. And sometimes that delay has to do with ensuring that there's ample evidence They want to make a strong case to bring a conviction. Timing matters, but I think the plan is that justice will prevail. Justice will prevail. Now, as we think about the the heavenly realm and God's purposes and his justice, for all of us who have trusted in the promises of God, it may seem at times like God's justice is delayed, but we can be certain that it is not ultimately denied. And that's what the fifth seal is addressing. I want you to look at that with me in verse 9. As the seal is opened, what does John see? What does he see? Look at the text there. He sees the souls of the slain. They are martyred for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus. There they are, the souls under the altar. It's It's an interesting picture. Now, this is a vision I don't think that the souls of the martyrs are actually stored in some, some place under an altar in heaven, but it, it, it's meant to depict something here. It's symbolic imagery. So why are they depicted under the altar? Well, this, this takes us back to the, the, the altar, the tabernacle. The tabernacle, where well, the sacrifices were slaughtered in the Old Testament. The blood of the sacrifice, the blood representing the very life of the one who died, the, the, the animal that died, flowed to beneath the altar. And so what I, what I take from this is that, is that the deaths of those who died for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus, they are martyred for their faith. I take it that those deaths to God are sacrificial and they are holy to him. It's not an insignificant thing that they die as witnesses to him. It's not just like, oh, well. It it seems like there's a special preciousness to the Lord. And these souls, they cry out together, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true. They're addressing God Almighty, the one who is in charge over all things. They're addressing him. You rule. We know you're in charge. Isn't it? Any detail in all creation that is out of your grasp or or control, you're sovereign. And they address him holy and true. You're righteous and you're true. You will do what is right. And so they're appealing here to the justice of God. They're asking how long, how long before judgment and vengeance for our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth, we're to understand that those aren't just everybody Those who dwell on the earth are are as opposed to the servants of God. So they are the enemies of God. Those who dwell on the earth are the enemies of God. How long? When are you going to make it right? When will there be justice? Now we're told at that moment that each each of the souls is given a white robe. And it reinforces what God thinks of them. But this is true of all who die in Christ. Christ. They are counted righteous. And so they receive that white robe of righteousness. I've counted you righteous. But we see as well that these souls don't get immediate satisfaction. They're told to rest a little longer. And and the answer given is kind of startling. Till the number of additional souls to be killed, is martyred, is complete. He's saying more will suffer and die. There may be more school shootings. More Christians will be killed for their faith. It should not surprise us. It's in the scroll, it's a hard pill. But God has particular concern for those who are killed for righteousness' sake. God is jealous for them. In the way that that when Abel was killed by his brother Cain, Abel, for a righteous motivation, Cain, for an unrighteous jealousy, Abel's brother, we're told in Genesis 4.10, cried to the Lord from the ground seeking justice. And there will be justice. And God cares about justice. But we have to wait. Now, my wife and I were talking about this. It's, it's very disturbing because we haven't experienced much persecution, at least in this part of the world. And it's very disturbing when it seems like the narrative in the news is more concerned about the sense of oppression of the shooter, more concerned with that person than the victims of the crime. But that's what happened in Jesus' day, right? The righteous one of God was targeted by the religious elites, Jesus himself. They set aside any sense of lawfulness for the greater cause in their mind of eliminating this so-called evil one, they thought Jesus was evil, and they put him to get to death. And how many times since has that happened? Brothers and sisters, I have no prophet, but I know we should expect more to die. But we're assured and this is the last section in verses 12 through 17, that there is no escape for the rebellious. No escape. Now, I just, I just read that hospitals have just dropped their requirements for masking for staff and uh, the general public. That is to say, in non-surgical environments. I'm gonna set aside the debate around the efficacy of masks for slowing the virus, but, but I think we all get something that, that we experienced, that there was this, this, this cost it's unknown and, and really difficult to quantify, but we, we felt the social cost of those masks. When the face of a person is covered, even partially you, you lose something. In the face of a person, you see joy, you see sorrow, frustration, acceptance, indignance, you see curiosity, you see wonder and, and anger. And for, for most people who have sight, we need we need the faces of those we love. And parents, you know how this goes, right? Think of your young child. You're, you're trying to c- correct them and they're looking elsewhere and you say, look at me. Look at me. Why? Because in the face, there's a relationship. And, and, and perhaps you've heard this. When, when someone utterly rejects another person, right? she might say, I never want to see your face again. Right? Now, the sixth seal... This is for those who don't want to see the face of God, who never want to see his face. But it is also the, the promise of eternal justice and the assurance that absolutely no one will escape. You see, these, these ones identified in the sixth seal, they hate the face of God. They're horrified at the face of God. Six seal is opened. There's this great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. Verse 13, stars fell to the earth like figs falling. The sky vanished like a, a, a scroll being rolled up. Mountains and islands removed from their places. Now the Old Testament prophets use this kind of language to speak of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's vengeance. They described it as a massive time of upheaval and whether those cosmic signs are intended to be literal or not, I won't get into that. It will be understood to be a time where God meets out his judgment. Just some examples from the Old Testament. Isaiah 34, 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. And Joel 2.31, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what will be the result of this massive upheaval? Verse 15, The kings of the earth, the great ones. These are the acknowledged rulers and authorities. But then the generals, those who are powerful in war. Then also the wealthy, military leaders, those who influence the economy and control the wealth. But then he says slaves and then free people. No one is excluded. Everyone, those who dwell on the earth. The ones, these are the ones whom the souls of the the, the martyrs, they were seeking justice. And what did these people do? These who dwell on the earth. They hid themselves, we're told, in caves and rocks. They hid themselves from the face of the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Now, I, I think it's, it's figurative language here, but they're calling on the mountains and the rocks to fall on us. What, what that communicates is that they would prefer death rather than to stand before the face of God. There is horror for the unrighteous, for the unredeemed, to stand before the face of God. For the one who loves God, for the one who longs for the appearing of Jesus, the face of God is mercy. The face of God is love and welcome. The face of God is is joy. The face of God is just overflowing grace upon grace upon grace. But for the rebellious, to see the face of God, that day will be unspeakable horror because they will know that his judgment leads to eternal condemnation. Condemnation. Topic of hell is not a pleasant one, is it? But it's in the Bible. Eternal judgment. Judgment. Uh, Jesus described Hell as a place of outer darkness, as a weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8:12. described as a fiery furnace. The flame doesn't go out, Matthew 13:42. "Hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched." Jesus described it that way, quoting Isaiah 66:24. Just this past week, I was listening to a podcast. Some of you are familiar with The Briefing, host Albert Moeller. He was answering a question about which Bible doctrines really are the first to be compromised or ignored as churches make their descent towards apostasy. And he said, and I don't know if this is true, he said it was the doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell. It's not a pleasant topic, I get it. That pulpit pounding, turn or burn, fire and brimstone preaching might have been a thing for previous generations. But I'm being reminded here that we must never ignore the Bible's message that our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. And the reality that we must all face is that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And at the judgment before the face of God, you and I will either stand in Christ and be saved, or outside of Christ. And be judged. And let me ask you, where will you be? Where will you be? We see these passages in Scripture, and we take the warning seriously. If you're in Christ, you are protected. If you're in Christ today, if you've put your faith in Christ, he has already received the full fury of God's wrath on your behalf at the cross. That is your protection. And if you're truly in Christ today, you've looked to the cross, you've repented of your sins, you have trusted in what Jesus has done for you, knowing that there's nothing in you that makes you worthy to stand before God. But Christ and his perfect righteousness, you included in him, are fully and absolutely accepted as a holy and righteous in God's sight. That is glorious. The free gift of salvation has been offered and there's so many who look at that and go, nah, thanks, I don't want that. They spit in the face of God for the very glorious gift of his son crucified. And they say, no, I'll, I'll, I'll stand in my own. That's a place of Horror and I don't want you to be there. Settle this today. Settle this today. Well, I've used lots of time this morning. Let me just sum this up. The six seals, we'll get to the seventh. The six seals give us a kind of an overview of history. So here's what we need to do, brothers and sisters. Expect tribulation. Now, I think you already do but when it happens, don't be surprised. When you suffer, don't be surprised. Try to alleviate suffering. We do that, but don't be surprised. God, why are bad things happening? And if God was to answer you, go, the scroll, the seal. And some of our brothers and sisters, and maybe some of us, will be, killed for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus be patient God will vindicate his name God will vindicate his son and there will be a day of judgment but know this if you're in Christ that day of judgment will be glorious so brothers and sisters hold on to that hope Let's pray. We uh, thank you, God, for what you have unveiled to us, and uh, we pray that we would be um, not surprised, be patient, and put our hope fully in that day when the Lord Jesus will return and make everything right. So teach us an increasing measure to fix our eyes on Jesus the very author and finisher of our faith, who himself for the joy set before him endured his own cross, despised its shame. And Father, to know that nothing, nothing at all in creation, powers, angels, nothing, nothing can separate from your love in Christ Jesus, your son. Thank you, God for the eternal hope we have in him. All glory to Jesus. Amen.